1: Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life, and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray.
2: Well, hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country, or around the world. Actually, we are all having a pretty good contingency out of... uh, Costa Rica, as well as Ireland. But this is Judge Jim Gray, as you heard on the Voice America Variety Channel. And I'm just, again, always excited to be with you for another edition of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray, where always have interesting guests. And I can tell you, had no exception today. So we are discussing various things for each an hour, each Friday morning, 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Pacific, and we'll, we'll address these issues, many of which, of course, are either not being discussed or being kind of vilified in, by our so-called leaders, but we'll give an in-depth analysis and give you hope, because if we employ libertarian values, libertarian approaches of live and let live, of responsibility at all levels of society, things of that kind, we will all rise together. Frequently, of course, at the expense of a lot of vested interests and uh, a lot of powerful people. But today, our special guest is a good friend of mine, Mary Krieber. Well, let me take that a little bit back. Uh, Her father was a very good colleague of mine, good friend of mine. He actually uh, was a criminal defense attorney in my court when I was uh, on the bench and then became a judge on the court. And uh, he was very solid all the way through. Kind of even-tempered fellow, uh, as uh, maybe Mary would say different because she has different experience, but we knew Ron Creeber to be just a wonderful man. And I've never heard of this before, but in 2015, Mary Creeber was appointed to the Superior Court of Orange County to replace her retiring father. So she now occupies the same position that her father, Ron, did. So that's a wonderful thing. So Mary, welcome. And uh, you are unique in many ways, more and certainly including that one. Welcome to All Rise.
3: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure uh, to be invited.
2: Well, give us a little bit of your background, just so we kind of know who Mary Creeber is. Uh, I know that you went got a BA at uh, Cal State University at Long Beach and went to Western State University College of Law for your JD, but uh, tell us a little bit more. Where are you raised and a and, uh, little bit about, hey, who is this Judge Mary Kreeber lady?
3: So, um, to start with, I was raised in Southern California. Um, I um, began... Well, currently, I am the supervising judge of collaborative courts in Orange County. Um, I preside currently over the community court, which is, uh, includes all of the criminal mental health courts, um, veterans treatment court, military diversion court, homeless court, drug court, uh, and DUI court. Um, so I have a few calendars. Um, my start in this, um, line of work was after college, um, I really, you know, I was not necessarily intending to go into law. Um, I had kind of come out of college with um, an international relations major and thought that I was going to do great things internationally. And um, I got a my first job, actually, my first real job, I'll say, um, was with a firm of lawyers who represented uh, children in juvenile courts. And I was not in law school. It was just a job that was um, kind of part investigator, part social worker, um, part just making sure that the, the people, and they represented parents in dependency cases, so that the people they represented um, knew what was to be expected. I could follow up with you know, their treatment plans and whether they were, you know, follow up with whether or not they were getting to these appointments or if they needed more resources. So it was, um, it was a Girl Friday kind of job where you just did everything. Um, and as that progressed, I gravitated to being closer and closer to the courtroom where it seemed that all the action was. Um, and then I started doing a lot of interviews and that, that job just really led into something that was, you know, um, unique into itself. And that was at a time that was back late '90s, and so this is at the you know the very emergence of um, solution courts and collaborative courts, and people were just starting to look at what was happening in the criminal justice arena, and they were looking at juvenile, and they were looking at dependency and families, and really kind of re. Reassessing um, whether we were getting, you know, the results that we wanted to have happen um, out of those courts and out of that process. And so, you know, fast forward, um, I went to law school at night and continued in the, the multi-faceted role that I was in um, for that for for that firm. And eventually, they took me up to San Jose, and um, the the firm in Orange County, which is uh, Southern California, bid out of a contract in Northern California for one of the first dependency collaborative courts. And I was barely out of law school and they sent me up there to, um, you know, to help with not just the hiring, um, of a new type of lawyer, but the processing of thousands of cases into a new contract under a very, very different model. So that was kind of my first experience with juvenile, which is kind of collaborative in nature, even back then, um, to real true collaborative courts, um, you know, with with the Northern California uh, assignment, and then I came back to Orange County. Uh, I went and uh, started working for the public defender's office as a defense attorney. And even within that role, I really found myself always gravitating towards either solution courts or collaborative courts or mental health. Um, that you know, I came in with an awareness of substance abuse or substance use disorders and mental health and how that was interfacing with people coming into the criminal justice system, and I just carried that through, I think, in my career with the Public Defender's Office. So, the shorter version of that um, experience is that I, you know, went on to try cases in all capacities, criminal fraud, gang cases, you know, all arson cases, complex, um, you know, insurance fraud kind of cases. Uh, A lot of um, sex cases uh, were coming out as well, and all the while, I was um, keeping involved in the collaborative courts. And eventually, I went on to, in that office, supervise the mental health unit uh, of the public defender's office. Uh, and from there, I was um, then uh, appointed to the bench directly from that, from that assignment.
2: And from whom did That's you, uh, whose spot did you take? I'm sorry? Whose spot did you take on the court?
3: Well, I did, uh, I did in fact take, uh, my father's spot. Um, and it was interesting because, um, you know, I felt when I was applying that I really, it was a negative to have, you know, another, not it, just in the, in perception, having another judge, um, in my family. Um, I, I really thought it was a negative for purposes of application. Um, and I really thought it was important that I, you know, really, Separate my experience from that experience at and at the same time i I really was influenced by you know who my father was and what he was doing, which happened to be you know in his own in his own right he was in some of those you know front courts, and I think he was pushing the envelope back in the day and and I followed suit.
2: So. <laughs> well, he's a great man, and, and please pass along my regards to him, Mary. But I, I, I was on juvenile court on the abused and neglected children calendar, which I view as the most important judging in the world. Uh, if you lose children, they 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 are entitled entitled to have a good childhood, or at least a good shot at it. And and we had our successes, we also had our our losses. But but we need to address those sorts of things. And also, you know, we have. Followed a political slogan of tough on crime into a public policy, which has just been, in many ways, just harmful to to our society, harmful to the individual people. Uh, so the the goal of the criminal justice system is not to be tough on crime or even to incarcerate. It's to reduce crime. It's to address the causes, such that. And I'm no bleeding heart liberal. Believe me, I'm a pretty. I'm in the responsibility business. But but we've right. got to address the individual reasons. Why these various crimes occur? So that's what you're doing in the community courts, uh, uh, and and how do you put that into practice, Judge Mary Krieber?
3: So um, two things. First, um, on the juvenile uh, court level, uh, you know, I'm very good friends with the presiding judge of juvenile court in Orange County because we find ourselves in the exact same meetings with the exact same, you know, training and issues. And and to your point, Judge Gray, she. Uh, she always says that, you know, her needs come first because juvenile comes first. And then I always respond that mine come first because I have the parents. So uh, we go back and forth on that constantly. But we, I think, are in agreement that um, our, courts in, our courts are family treatment courts, whether we know them or not. Um, and that's a kind of an interesting starting point because we really both see um, how important it is to uh, have solutions early on. So um, what we're doing in collaborative court in the community court. So those practices, um, you know, the practices in, in community courts across the nation um, and it is, you know, this is something that has been uh, this, this wave of um, practice is not unique, obviously to California or Orange County. Absolutely. Um, we see some of the most, um, you know, the most, uh, the most interesting cutting-edge best practices um, often come out of the most, um, in some ways, most politically conservative uh, arenas. And I think Orange County uh, falls into that. And it's because it's not just about um, people come in and, and look at it as you're helping an individual, you know, and you're looking at that first. But really, um, it's so much more than that um, when you look at it and and take a step back. We are looking at public safety. We are looking at, um, you know, what we saw in the 80s is a generation of sentencing to state prison and sentencing them to high, high sentences across um, the board on what now have been, you know, reduced to to misdemeanors. But back in the time, they they were serving state prison sentences on these same cases and charges. And we realized, um, and it, it, was the, it was the researchers and the people that were really doing the studies that, that pointed out first, we were sending people to state prison and to, um, and to jail for long periods of time where they might as well be um, getting a college degree and how to be a better criminal, right? They were networking within themselves, their, their friend set, um, they were developing these contacts, they were developing better practices. They were getting coping skills that they were developing, and their other inmates were their models, and and that that was a generation that as soon as that um, group got released, then you know the studies were coming back at how much we were looking at recidivism. So we really are, um, as solution courts or collaborative courts, um, we really are coming from the starting point of this is a financial cost on our you know, on our county, on our state, this is a cost to these cities. Um, and it's a cost on recidivism, not to mention, you know, going back to the, just the cost of incarceration, right? The sheer cost of incar- incarceration in jail or state prison is something that goes back on the county. And when you start pulling those numbers of what we could do different and what the evidence-based practices show that could be our outcomes, um, these courts have become you know, some of the number one recidivism reduction um, plans uh, in the nation. And, again, it's coming out of, you know, states like Texas. You know, Texas is not known to be warm and fuzzy with their their, um, criminal justice-involved population, but they're not looking at this from the warm and fuzzy. They are looking at what do we want as outcomes. And if we want super criminals, then we just need to keep doing what we're doing if we don't then and if we're really concerned with public safety and really concerned with changing our you know societal changes we really have to look at how to get there Um, so that's what we're doing and those practices those are not you know the practices we use in these courts are not um, you know they started to be you know judges always think they you know we've had years of experience so we have a gut instinct um, and every agency thinks the same. You know, defense counsel thinks that they've been working with this population forever so they have a knowledge or the district attorneys and prosecutors have another insight. But what we found is that we need to go away from our gut instincts and start looking at practices. Um, what really works? Not what do we think we you know works, what do we, who do we think we should take in? Um, who do we think we can work with? Now we really have to look at um, who can we work with based on studies. Um, So everything we do is evidence-based practices. In fact, I think the role of a collaborative court judge in some ways is not the monitoring of a participant um, because that's kind of a job that's done with other stakeholders. But um, really, I think the major prime job for a collaborative court judge is really running a multi-stakeholder, multi-agency accountability calendar so that they are doing best practices. Well, um, and that's not it's- an easy task.
2: Indeed, Judge Marion. You, you've said an awful lot, and, and you're, you're simply right. I can first go back and say that the, the contest between the collaborative courts and the juvenile courts as to which is first, uh, I have an answer for that. Uh, you're both first, so now you know. Right. But uh, I also go back to Milton Friedman, who's a definite hero of mine, who says that we should assess, we should judge our programs by the results, not their good intentions. Exactly. And that's what you're talking exactly. about here. Let's let's look at the consequences. Let's look what's happening, because I've seen this, I've seen it forever, but 95% of the people that we sentenced to prison are going to get out, they're going to be released. So what kind of people are they going to be then? Have they gone to a finishing school for crime? And like you said, you know, they compare notes and how you can do it better and work out partnerships for when they get out and they they share, well, how did you get caught? Oh, you did that? Oh no, you have to do it much better. You won't get caught next time sort of thing. And instead, if judges and the criminal justice system they're, we are the ultimate social workers, in my view, that we work with people and you wearing a black robe. You know, you can sometimes put people where they don't want to be, but they're going to get out. You use that as an incentive. Incentives matter. And, and that's kind of what you're talking about here. And I'll relate to you that uh, I was on a formal probation violation calendar one time, and we had a system in which I'd get a report from probation as to how these individuals were doing, and they'd, they'd come into my courtroom. And so if you got three stars, that meant basically you're kind of treading water, you're doing okay, below that you're not going to make probation. If you got four stars, though, that meant that you're actually taking your program seriously, and that was good. And if you got five stars, that meant that not only you were, but you were spreading it to your colleagues, to the other people on the program. And the reason I'm bringing that up now is because I had a system, a procedure, wherein if anyone got five stars, I'd put them first on the calendar and I would commend them, congratulate them, and get off the bench and shake their hands. And I still Absolutely. had I still remember I had two fairly young men, probably in their late twenties, each different times. Each of them was broke out in tears in court when I did that saying, Your Honor, no male has ever congratulated me for anything in my life. And you're in the position, Judge Mary Krieger, on these collaborative courts to reinforce the positives, to congratulate people when they do something right. Yes, you know, there's sanctions and responsibility when you don't, but it's the attitude. I know you can do better. I know you can, if you're mentally ill, you can live up to the maximum of your, of your capabilities. So tell us about one of the particular collaborative courts and tell us that the frustrations you face, the challenges you face, the successes, and, of course, some are not successful. But pick one and tell us about it.
3: So, um, you know, my easy one to speak of is always the Veterans Treatment Court, because people can really identify with the fact that these people have put their lives on their line, on the line, um, they have come back, and and those courts take a population that they're coming into the criminal justice system because of something that was absolutely um an issue that happened during their military service. So that's an easy one um to really look at. Um but you know the cases we have coming in there um are really serious and the population um you know that's coming in is uh often you know PTS or PTSD is the primary. Uh, generally those courts are always co occurring meaning there's always a secondary um you know, 90, and totally 95 97% are coming in with, um, you know, substance use disorder. Oftentimes, they're also coming in with medical issues that include traumatic brain injuries. And so we, um, you know, we're looking at that population. Um, and I think our, our, our first generation of, of collaborative courts used to do things where we would take um what we thought we could work with. And at the time it's the information and science that we had. So we took the lower hanging fruit, the easier to deal with. Um we looked at them and, and we were asking them to pass the attitude test. Right. That was kind of we wanted to make sure we could work with them. We were a little bit um less trauma informed, less culturally informed. And so we were we were kind of taking in a less sophisticated um population. And we put them all in the same program, right? We put them, okay, here's our program. This is what it looks like. And it was kind of made for, you know, everybody did almost the same thing. And that that just was what we looked at as the first-generation courts. And then the second-generation courts were coming through, and they started to do... Um, risk of recidivism and, um, assessments as, as far as really assessments to figure out what track they would put in. Um, and then we started realizing, um, and this is again a national phenomenon, but definitely something that was, uh, in my county. Um, we started looking at the fact that we were taking lower risk, um, for recidivism, recidivism, uh, and we were putting them in high supervision, high resourcing, um, course. And what we looked at when we looked at all the numbers are, and, and all the, you know, we looked at all the demographics, we had the, you know, DC people come out and do assessments, we did self-assessments. We really realized that um, to get the, you know, the real bang for your buck, um, so to speak, in, in financial terms, you have to go after the high risk of recidivism and high acuity or high need. Um, and that's counterintuitive to so many people, right? They are fearful of taking violence. They are feel, you know, fearful of, of doing these things. But if our successes um, are shown on that population, then we're, we're, we're putting the resources in the right place. If the person comes in as a medium risk or a low risk, um, it's interesting because if you mix the population, you think that the low risk people will kind of make the higher risk people better, but it's opposite. If we don't do those assessments, Assessments correctly, we could make people that are not high risk. um, We could make them high risk. So our programs really changed in the sense of we started to do assessments and we started to look at tracks. And now this third generation of programs, um, we not only look at those assessments as our key because we've got to get this right right from the from the beginning. But now we're looking at you know you could have combat vets one come in and combat that two come in. And even if their experience is similar, the response and their their needs could be completely different. So now we're going into the next generation of courts, which is not only do we put you in the right track and, and assessment, but we give you the right program for you. and And that's the whole generation of trauma-informed courts and culturally competent courts and And understanding that the needs of one are not the needs of the other. So we are very, um, rapid. I mean, we're on, it's an ongoing process of really refining, um, you know, the population, how we deal with the population and our results. If I'm, if, um, I'm looking at the difficulties that we've had, you know, I've got, um, across the board, I've got, changing politics and I've got changing board of supervisors and changing sheriffs and you know and, and collaborative courts are something that, you know, in my world I've only known those my entire career. They've they've been there. But sometimes, you know, it's competing resources. So, you know, do you put the money with the sheriff and build new jails or do you put the money with programs? And you know, the problem is the courts can only go so far in that and it's informing and educating, but at the end of the day, um, politics, you know, those politics could crush out our programs, results or not. And so it's, it's, you know, part of the job to be there, but it's a really difficult job sometimes because educating, you know, I'm at every bar association, every, every, you know, psychiatric conference, um, you know, I'm, I'm really, my entire team is really out there. Um, to explain what we do. Um, but again, that's one of our biggest difficulties. Um, and then the second, I think my second biggest difficulty is I have multiple stakeholders and I'm, and I'm, these courts are changing cultures within other stakeholders. So, you know, the, the, the culture of a sheriff's department that runs in jail is not one that's treatment oriented. There, there's safety protocols and that's a a brotherhood and brother and sisterhood that, you know, they've, that culture has developed for years. And so I, you know, we're coming in asking for stakeholders um, and we are, you know, really education is part of it. And so I'm asking stakeholders to come in and they are, um, but it's an ongoing process.
2: Well, Mary, Again, I think you're just reinforcing that you should not be in that business that you are in unless you care about people, unless you are a social worker and that that's form of mentality. But of course, you also have to enforce responsibility. You know that Correct. you suffer. From people criticizing you and what you're doing. Oh, you're just a bleeding heart liberal. Oh, you know, you're just trying to say, oh, it's somebody it's society's fault instead of their fault. But again, if you look back at results, that's the key. And you there was we had a wonderful probation officer, head probation officer in Orange County for years named Michael Schumacher. And he wrote a book that kind of describes what you're talking about. And it was called the 8% solution. And he figured out that. 8% 8% of the juveniles are causing, or the people, the juvenile delinquents are causing 55% of the crime. So if you're going to try to reduce crime and get to people, let's focus on those 8%, which is what you're doing, exactly. you're saying is the, the more hardcore. So so thank you for what you're doing. We're going to take a couple of messages here and come back, and when we do, we're going to talk about your team, talk a little more in detail about what the collaborative courts are, uh, accountability, because People in our country need to know, first of all, that there is responsibility in this. It's not just kind of bleeding heart, oh, it's too bad, baby, poor baby. That's not it. We're into reducing offenses, reducing crimes, reducing victimization, and, by the way, reducing the prison population. Because we have tens of thousands of people in prison, in my opinion, in the state of California and around the country that simply should not be there. So this is Judge Jim Gray. If we – you employ – practical solutions, solutions like Milton Friedman said, that work, instead of have good intentions and and apply those fundamental values of responsibility, we will literally all rise together. So we're going to hear a couple of messages and come back and all rise some more. So stay tuned.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. Join the Libertarian Party today at LP.org. Together, we can move mountains.
1: You are listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way, with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome
2: back. This is Judge Jim Gray on All Rise. And again, the theme is if we employ libertarian values, responsibility, live and let live, uh, accountability, and practical responses and results, we will all rise together. Uh, I've been told by my wife, as I've said a couple of times now on past shows, that I've been asked to be inject a little silliness into my show, so I'm going to uh, uh, comply with my wife's request. I have to do that. She's my boss. So I finally figured out what I wanted to be when I grew older, and the answer is younger. So, okay, there we go. You didn't have to laugh, Mary, but thank you. I'm sure I'm, I could feel the, the the laughter all around the country when I said that. But I, I am I'm going to be proud for a moment, Mary Krieber, Judge Mary Krieber, our guest, who is the presiding judge on the collaborative courts, which really do kind of roll up their sleeves and address real problems that will help people live better lives, reduce crime, or reduce victimization. And I was appointed to the what was then the municipal court back at the end of 1983. Uh, You weren't very old at that time, Judge Mary, but I was appointed and I immediately saw one of the major unmet needs uh, in our court system was alcohol-related offenses. What we would do, you know, we'd take them in, DUIs or driving under the influence or alcohol-related offenses. We'd growl at them. We'd take their money. We'd put them on informal probation and say, don't do it again and kick them out the door. And so if you were an alcoholic – you are not a good candidate for probation because you are going to continue to drink. If you continue to drink, you'll probably drive, and eventually you're going to go out and kill somebody. And I, I reached that resolution one, or realization one time when uh, there was a, a a civil case brought by a mother of a deceased son who had been killed by a drunk driver, and she was suing the the perpetrator for for involuntary manslaughter, and I was thinking to myself, you know, he had no money. All I could do is I got off the bench and hugged her and said, I'm sorry. But then you keep thinking to yourself, well, why doesn't someone do something? And who better than a municipal court judge? So I'm proud to say by June of 1984, six months after I was appointed, I had up and running the first drug court in the country, as far as I know, for alcohol-related offenses. And Mary Krieber, I'm sure that you have these results as well, but I have a stack which I'm truly gratified. Maybe two and a half inches of paper, letters. Dear Judge Gray, I was going to divorce my husband. He'd drink, he'd get drunk, he would he'd hit me sometimes. He was irresponsible with the children, but now he's on your in your program. He's off alcohol. Thank you. You've given me my husband back. So that is kind of my short analysis. We were able to keep about 65% of the, we didn't call them alcoholics. We called them high risk problem drinkers, but you knew what we meant. And we were able to keep them off alcohol for about a year, which is as long as I was able to keep statistics. So that's my story. Mary, uh, tell us again, some of the programs you had, you're talking about veterans, you're talking about the mentally ill, you're talking about juveniles. Uh, tell us another, uh, the homeless court, what does that do uh, and, and how successful are you?
3: So our homeless court model um, is a separate calendar. Um, keeping in mind that our mental health courts Um, three out of the five courts require homelessness to enter into the program. So the two programs are vastly different. The Homeless Outreach Court in Orange County currently is a program designed for low-grade misdemeanors with no victims, um, infractions, quality of life type related um, cases. And those, um, that, that population comes in voluntarily so they're not cited to the court they go to another court and if they would like to participate then they can and and that choice makes a big difference because not everybody is ready to do any of these programs so um having that choice means that if they come over um it is a population that you know there's a lot of fines and fees and costs associated and in exchange for um some volunteer community service, um, and uh, by making sure that they have housing and secured in either income, which could be SSI, SSDI, or port- part-time uh, income, um, we will dismiss those cases. So, in you know, to put it in context, these are cases that the county would spend a lot of time and money trying to get. Uh, blood from a turnip, for lack of a better um, analogy. But it's just that the money's not there, and they would chase after that. And these are cases that would keep people from getting a driver's license and keep people, it's it just they're buried in these, or they get warrants. And it's just, you could see the cycle from these cases. And so that program is an all-carrot-no-stick program is what we call it, meaning they're infractions. Um, I don't take them into custody if they are not present for multiple court hearings, I may, um, have to issue a bench warrant. And even if I do, I, they, they call it inviting someone back so that if the person then, um, comes back, we take care of that warrant instantly. So it's just a matter of not keeping them in the calendar, but still that door is open. It is a hugely successful program. Um, we are looking at models, um, my model right now, I call it the flying road model, which means that I do house that calendar in the community court because there are services at the court and additional services that come just for that calendar. So on a given day as a judge, I order them back to the courtroom at one thirty, but they are inundated with, you know, services from adult behavior health or, um, you know, therapy, mental health, driver's license, social security, even other lawyers um, from the Bar Association are there. So if it's a, a number of things that are kind of getting them down or keeping them from moving forward, we try and get those services. And that includes health services, so even medical doctors. Um, it's a whole population that comes just, to, or a whole uh, set of resources that come. Um, they also go with me on the flying robe model so that, If I need to do this in another city, um, we do this in uh, other locations around the county, depending where that population is. So if there's a homeless population, like a large group, um, the public defender's office um, asks that we, you know, hold a calendar in South Orange County or North Orange County. And that's what we do. We all get in a car and my bailiffs come with me, my clerks come with me, and we set up shop so that we can um, come to where that population is, and it is again hugely successful.
2: Well, Mary, we we had and, and Wendy Lindley, Judge Lindley, helped set these things up, and she's just a, yes. a a wonderful lady. But she would actually hold court at the Orange County Rescue Mission. The idea, let's yes. let's go to where they are instead of having them come to us, and and it's really effective. And if they certainly take you seriously. You're wearing a robe, you're you're there, but also. People do not, in our society do not understand that before we had homeless courts, you'd have people, that, okay, we're homeless or mentally ill, and they'd have a citation for urinating in public or illegal camping or whatever that might be, jaywalking. And so they'd be cited to come into court. Well, they'd forget or they wouldn't come. So you'd issue a bench warrant. And, and eventually people, you know, you can't find somebody like that. You don't want to put them in jail. So maybe you'd give them com- uh, community service work. Well, they'd have to pay us some money to do that or they'd forget or they'd be unreliable. So pretty soon these people would develop stacks and stacks of files. And it was an enormous drain on our criminal justice system Had all these warrants out there and all of the clerks were doing all of this stuff. But once we got these community courts, the homeless courts, whatever, we would compact all of those in, get rid of them so that we didn't have this drain on society and everything going on, and actually good things would start happening. They even, as I understand it, would sometimes give out free bus tickets or even movie tickets if you were able successfully to uh, to cre- cre- uh, finish off uh, some form of program, whatever, you'd give out rewards. So is that in effect what you're still doing?
3: It is a, a very positive court, and yes, that is exactly what we're doing. It is um, very interesting and kind of, again, um, counterintuitive to many in the criminal justice world. Um, it is an all-positive, um, all-incentive court, right? There's really nothing that the court is going to do uh, unless they don't show up. I mean, there's things that can be done, but we really, that's not our goal, and that's not what we want to see happen. It is, do you need more time on this? We'll give you more time. Um, you know, that that group, it's hard to be homeless. Um, following up with court dates is not always your priority. And so, um, and also my court is open five days a week and not just for that calendar and those services are there. So there's also this, um, law, and this is again, judge, uh, great going back to judge Lindley, who I, you know, I, in my world, she's like a rock star that I follow around because she, she did things that I just think were amazing. And this is one of them, but, um, Having these courts and having this incentivized court, uh, very positive response all the way through. And yes, we are very much doing much of the, much of the same work. We've refined things and perfected some things differently, but the, the base model is exactly, um, the model that Judge Lindley had started with.
2: Well, incentives matter. Is that what you're telling me? You know, you get positive oh. feedback you're going to adopt accordingly. It, it, it just works. And it's got to be very gratifying, Judge Mary Krieber, to, to see people being able to live up to their highest level of, of competence and to be able to, to get their lives together more and the rest. And you're a, a big part of that. So simply say thank you, because or we say thank you. You say you're welcome because you're doing wonderful <laughs> work for us all. It's got to feel good.
3: You know that I think I'm the lucky one, right? Because you and I both know that, um, you know, as a defense attorney, I remember representing both generations within a family or the same person. And I'd go to trial and I'd win a trial and that person would be back again. So I I felt like I was caught up in a system, even as an attorney. And then as judges, oftentimes it's balls and strikes. But in my world, um, you know, I am probably one of the, the luckiest judges in that I have 10 programs with graduations that, you know, those graduations, people would not believe the circumstances that these people are coming from and what they've done to graduate from certain programs. I mean, those amazing life stories, I constantly think that they should be memorialized because people just don't understand how much, um, you know, how much change we see and, It is. When you listen to their stories, you think to yourself that if I was in the same shoes, I don't know if I would have been able to do all this person has done um, to get through that and to be where they are at the graduation. So I'm really lucky. Um, I have the best job in the world. Sorry, well, you. It's, uh... <laughs> you do, and
2: you do it well, and it, I've said this before in my program, but the most important thing in life from my standpoint is gratification, and uh, it's knowing that the world's a somewhat better place because you were here, you're getting gratification by doing these good things, and it's so practical, too. I told you about my alcohol-related court, my drug court, and I figured mad, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving or, you know, I was a better judge if I put them in jail longer was pretty much their approach. But once they realized what I was doing, they gave me an award. You know, they realized that, hey, this is actually working. We're actually reducing alcohol-related offenses. And it was the same thing I found, and you found this too probably, when we had the arresting officers come to graduation at drug court where the... This person was arrested for driving under the influence, whatever, and then, uh, you know, a year later, the deputy sheriff arresting officer comes to court and watches graduation, and the defendant, the subject, thanks that officer, you know, gives him a hug saying, the best thing you ever did for me was bringing me into this program. I've seen deputy sheriffs in tears. You know, it works, Absolutely. sport fans. It just works. So be aware. Good things are happening.
3: I agree. agree. I just I could not agree with you more on all fronts. And watching that change in the, it's not just the change in the participant; it's the change in law enforcement. Because I think law enforcement, like any other stakeholder, you get um, kind of trapped in your own world, and you see you know the same thing happening over and over again. You start getting cynical. Um, People start believing that that is the only thing that they can do, and so when they they come in. When they see these people as people and watch what can happen, I think we're not just changing the participant's life. I think that we're changing cultures within our, you know, just within our society. Um, and it's a great change. It's a great change to see across the board
2: we want things that work and and i remember yeah. on my calendar oh charlie's back i mean it was just the old revolving yeah, door yeah. <laughs> unless you can intercede and and break that cycle so i, I actually had on a previous show uh, nick sarwak who was a former public defender as well in colorado and he said you know i saw lots of people sentenced for being under the influence of methamphetamine or selling or or whatever else and they weren't better people they once they got out of jail or even prison it, yeah. it wasn't accomplishing anything except spending about $100,000 of taxpayer money to keep them incarcerated. It just wasn't doing anything right. So you are. uh, In the time we have left Judge Mary Krieber on our collaborative courts, and you're the mainstay of it, and I know you feel good about it. Tell us about your team, because it's not just you. Uh, Tell us who is helping you. The the prosecutors have to be on board with this, and they are in Orange County, and that's good. And certainly the public defenders and the, the criminal defense bar, but you have others as well probation medical doctors what describe who, you, who is on your team
3: so I have um, ten calendars and ten separate teams, um, which means you know there 's over a thousand people coming through my court, and to manage that um, as a judge, you have to rely on the expertise of your stakeholders. I cannot you know as a judge make a call on psychiatric and/ or medication and so many other things so that team dynamic is it, and it's a learned skill. Um, these teams are coming in. You said that the um, prosecutors are coming in, the district, the, uh, uh, public defenders coming in. Um, even clinicians have a hard time coming from clinic work to court work because, um, they all are kind of learning that these are change courts. These are not courts that are meant to be supervision courts. So, um, you know, I, probation can supervise after they're done with custody. I am looking for changes and measurable changes in our population. And so um, all of our stakeholders are are really trained on that. So it includes um, uh, psychiatrists, um, psychologists. I have the therapy. um, I have the treatment providers depending on the level of treatment. So some are, you know, full wraparound services and others are, um, participants who have insurance and are out in the community, and there's a coordinator there to make sure that we're getting from them in the community what we need. Um, so the the legal end is represented, the psychiatric end is represented in the vet courts or the veteran treatment courts. Um, the VA is represented probation is always represented. Um, I also am moving towards, um, bringing in law enforcement. Um, and this includes something that's very, you know, in some ways it's, it's, um, not an easy move, but bringing in the sheriff and, or, uh, a representative from the chief's department to be involved in these courts. Um, you know, we are looking for outcomes and as they look at outcomes, Law enforcement being involved, not just there for the graduation, but as part of the, the team, they add, um, they add more information. So we know what drugs are on the street right now, what trends are happening right now. We know, um, you know, what's happening with medication. Uh, we know, you know, from the therapist, whether we need to involve family therapy, whether we involve children therapy. Uh, from the DA, we bring in the victim. Um, do we want to do a restorative justice model? Back to therapy—is this a you know—is this a trauma um, that, and uh, we presume it's trauma in our courts because there's so much trauma, and so we take all of these stakeholders and each comes from a different discipline, and they don't—they stay in their lane. Um, but what comes from that is a case plan that is not just a treatment plan or not just a probation plan, but it comes as a case plan that the participant knows, look. This is how I'm going to go through these courts. This is what is expected. And then each discipline monitors their own, you know, lane, so to speak. But the case plan is the key to, uh, and it's the multidisciplinary case plan, um, that is individualized to that participant's needs and that we communicate that. And, and the, the participant is also part of that discussion because you know, every need is considered. We need to look at housing and, and whether the health issues are something that's preventing what's happening, you know, from going further. Or is this an acute stabilization um, that then we need to start working on the substance use? So, it's, it's uh, that multi-stakeholder, um, that, that model is something that is different than any individualized stakeholder could do on their own. Probation couldn't do this on their own. The courts can't do this on their own. Um, they need to have not just the buy-in, but the expertise, um, and they are in fact experts. So, well, that's a model. It's,
2: you're saying it's a community court, and that that means that number one, we're dealing with the community, but we're also being a, a community of partners uh, from the the justice system itself or the medical system. You used a term, the restorative justice model. Briefly, what does that mean for our listeners?
3: For uh, the the restorative justice model is really where you see it is bringing in victims and victims with um, perpetrators or, or defendants or participants whatever you your name for the person that is charged um, bringing that together so that there's resolution. And the example I think the easy example is in um, one of our when, in one of my vet uh, veteran treatment courts I had a combat that was extreme I mean multiple tours multiple combat. Um, and PTSD is a primary, but um, he was a, a great example because this roommate, um, you know, this, this person just lost it and and went violent on this particular roommate out of the blue. Like, the roommate didn't know why. There was no explanation. There was little injuries, and, the, and the, um, the victim really couldn't understand any of that. And in the, you know, in other models, you send them the therapy and say, yes, we'll pay restitution. In the restorative justice model bringing them into the court, um, bringing the two together, having an understanding and having as part of our court process, you know, seeing that the person is making restitution and that's part of what the court is asking for. And, and to the extent that therapy can be therapy between the two, um, you know, we really want to have, um, closure, right? We want to have closure. We want to have people really, um, be involved in that. And so it's bringing the victim in uh, to the process. It's restoring um, the situation. Um, and you're never going to have necessarily full restoration, but you really bring all parties in. And the success of that and the healing of that um, is, is something that we've absolutely brought in um, as as part of our goals in our programs. To the extent we can, we really need to bring victims um, in um, and involve them.
2: I have seen it as humanizing the process that you, the perpetrator will see if I committed a burglary or an assault or whatever on someone, the, the damage it was yes. done, the, the hardship that I inflicted upon someone else. And it's also yes. important for the, the victim to see that, you know, this isn't somebody that's just grows horns. You know, he really is. She is a, a human being. You you bring that kind of closure, like you mentioned, is extremely important. And, and we're, we can do that. We are the ultimate social workers, uh, and, I, and of course, you're not going to have the, the perpetrator and the victim meet privately together. That's not a good idea. No. It's going to be monitored, uh, but you can you can turn it more into a positive thing, and even in the criminal justice system where this is being used, uh, sometimes it will reduced, result in a reduced sentence, but never without the victim's agreement. So it, it really is a healing process. So, Mary Krieber, you're heavily involved in this. In fact... Uh, I, I asked Wendy Lindley uh, who I should ask to come on this show, and she said, oh, you should have to have Mary Krieber, so you're it. Uh, but is it is it working nationwide? Uh, is it spreading? It's not just in Orange County, California. Uh, is it working, and, and uh, how so?
3: It is. Um, I, we know it's working, and it's not just us monitoring, and it is across the nation, in rural, in suburban, in urban uh, counties. It is across the board in places that you would not think, and from Dover, Delaware, and Texas to the Dakotas. Um, there are drug court, collaborative courts, and that model in every state. And And we have um, an international conference on the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, and that was 6,000 people that attended that um, conference uh a couple of weeks ago in washington d c and that was international attendance so we get visitors from Korea we get visitors from all over um, the world um, israel uh, I think that i've had europe they come in often um, this this is not a this is not a new model but it is something that is is across the board, showing its effectiveness. And NADCP, this is a, that's a bipartisan funded and it is, there's more funding in the studies and the success actually in this administration than ever before, which is interesting because it is literally, um, you know, they're looking at the results, right? They're not looking at this and let's hug it out. This is a, how are we going to change what are our results? And yes, it is um, those national studies, those um, international studies are, are showing proven exce- uh, success over and over again.
2: So Judge Mary Krieber, if someone listening here, either in our country or around the world, would like more information as to, maybe they have contacts with the justice system, maybe they're in it, maybe they they could, are in politics, and they want to help, where can they get more information? Is there a website? Is there a phone number? How can people get more information about this really effective approach and program?
3: There are multiple national and international uh, websites, but the, the the best starting point is going to be the National Association of Drug Court Professionals, also known as the NADCP. Um, when you do a Google search, um, it will intro you to uh, a subset for veterans, a subset for drug courts and DUI courts, um, specialization, training. If you contact them, they will tell you if there is a drug court or a, a model in your Um, area. They'll tell you where the closest model is. And they also, um, you know, they'll have models that if you are in the profession and are looking um, to start one of these courts, um, who you should, you know, where you could go. And they have technical assistance. So they can, in fact, um, pay for and will pay for um, technical assistance, and that includes coming out to some of the mentor courts. The other, you know, another really good resource is the Center for Court Innovation um, that is located in New York. Also, excellent resource for studies, comparison studies, technical um, assistance grants. Um, it's a big process, and they are um, really, they have some of the, the best studies as well. Um, third, uh, and I'll probably... I have two more that would be really good um, if you're looking into the the academic best practices. Um, SAMHSA is the, um, SAMHSA is a grant that, you know, it's S-A-M-S-A. When you go to their website, again, they have all of the studies. They have more technical assistance, and they do a lot more on the mental health end.
2: NADCP, National Association of Drug Court Professionals, you know, what I want people to realize out there is this is working. This is simply something that's making us all safer helping people from a humanitarian standpoint, a safety standpoint an economic standpoint. This is something that's working. We all know there are a lot of bad things happening in the world and we get hit in the face with them with some frequency this is something good. So we're bringing that to you. If we utilize efforts like this, approaches like this, we literally will all rise together. So thank you Judge Mary Krieber, for being with us. Thank you for what you're doing. Give my regards to your, your father and your mother, Virginia, and uh, tune in again for our listeners. We are helping. Things are working. We're going to regain the spirit of all rise. We're going to all rise together. So there you have it. Thank you for being with us. Look forward to another edition of all rise next week or go to our website and you can pick up any past edition that you wish. So I'll talk to you next Friday or maybe soon thereafter if you want to hit some that have been previously on demand. But in the meantime, this is Judge Jim Graing saying thank you for being with us and life is good.